Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal world. And you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today, I am so lucky to be back in Madison after a few weeks abroad um, and and joined by Diana E. Anderson, who is the author of In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. Diana, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you here. In case you are out there wondering, who is Diana E. Anderson? Diana is a non-binary writer and author. Their work primarily focuses on the intersection of gender, history, religion, and theory. Diana has been published in Rolling Stone, Cosmo, and Dame, just to name a few. They live in Minneapolis with their two cats. And today, we will be talking about their new book, In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. Um, I really I really loved your book. Your book felt so on time and like such kind of it felt like such a hug to get to to read this book. Um, so thank you for writing it. Why was it important to you to to tell your story, but also to really investigate what it, it means to be non-binary right now? For me, it was a lot of writing as sense making. I wanted to know where I fit and work out my own feelings about being non-binary. And the way I usually do that is through writing. And as I was writing it, it ended up turning into a book length project. Uh, So I called up my agent and was like, hey, I've got this thing. Um, And it helped for me. I wanted to write the book I wanted to read. I wanted to see myself and my journey reflected. And I realized that I wasn't finding that in the trans stories I was reading or in the stories about the LGBT community that existed. So I wanted to write something that looked through the history, looked through the gender theory, and looked through the uh, personal experiences and how people identify with their genders and come up with how they describe themselves. Um, and I ended up writing that. I really loved the history component of of this book. And in part, I think, because I was reading it, you know, while I was on, on vacation and I was reading it specifically in, in Mexico and I was going to see Frida's house. Um, and I remember the first time I was kind of introduced to Frida I felt completely valid in who I was as a queer person, as a political person, as a person of color, um, as a person who navigates disability. And it was this kind of awakening for me that people like myself had always existed and could not be erased. Um, And so when I got to kind of savor your book in that space, it felt like you were putting together pieces that to, to an even greater extent than just that kind of exposure to an individual within within the context of history. What are what are the things as you researched for this book, as you were writing this book um, that that stood out to you in terms of the history of non-binary identity? One of the phrases that I ended up coming back to over and over again as I was doing the research is that we've always been here. There have always been gender nonconforming, transgender, non-binary people existing, even if the language didn't exist to express those identities in the way that we do now. Um, Stumbling across the um, life of the public universal friend, for example, who was a non-binary Quaker preacher in the uh, 1700s and the early 1800s was just fascinating because they lived at the time that America was being built and that it was coming into its own. Um, And they were right there alongside helping negotiate the treaty with the Iroquois in upstate New York. Um, And so it's one of those things where like people like to say that transness is a new thing, that it's this new identity that they'd never heard about before, but we've been around in America since its founding. 
Um, and we've been around in the rest of the world as long as there are people. There have been non-binary and trans people. And you emphasize, you know, the the expansive relationships that different cultures have with non-binary identity. You, you talk pretty early on in the book about what it means to be two-spirit. You, um, you don't avoid the intersection of race or culture or ethnicity and what it means to be non-binary or gender non-conforming. Um, did... did was it a, a complex thing to navigate your own your own identity and the own specific relationship you have to being non-binary with the expansive relationships people throughout time and throughout um, the world have had with being, you know, non-binary or existing in, in a different way in terms of their relationship to the spectrum that is gender? Yeah, as a as a white person from South Dakota, um, I've oh, encountered... South Dakota. Yes. <laughs> I um I have encountered like native peoples who identify as two spirit and use those sort that sort of language to explain their own gender. Um and as I was reading, I saw so much of the binary gender system in which we live, the fact that there's the idea that there is man and woman and nothing in between, no crossover, nobody can change their gender or transition or anything is very much a western white colonialist project um and it's very much a part of white supremacy um it's imposing this idea of what the perfect person looks like onto all these other cultures and so working within that context i wanted to acknowledge that this is simply the language of the culture that we're swimming in right now and it is not how it always has been or how it has to be part of challenging the gender binary is challenging uh the whiteness of how we look at gender mm. I, I'm so grateful that you named that said that have have owned that as part of what it meant for you to write this book and at the same time I think one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is I think there's so much mythology and so much fear around the non-binary community right now, and particularly around what it means to parent somebody who is non-binary, um, what it what it looks like to let somebody who is non-binary go to school. Um, and I think that your, your book really had an, an enlightening quality in terms of the humanity of non-binary people and and really um, kind of miss busting those myths of, of folks as as dangerous or scary or intentionally hard to understand. What what do you what do you do, you know, in this current moment with a book like this um, that is so political because of our, our current political landscape? How do you kind of, you know, use use this vehicle for your voice and your story to combat um, the very real hatred that is aimed at the trans community, at the non-binary community right now. Yeah, the thing that I have found is that trans people and non-binary people have for so long had our stories told for us. Mm. Uh, for a lot of trans people in the uh, 20th century, it was doctors determining the narrative of how they should be. It was society and culture determining how they should live. And we, I say early on in the book that we don't get the chance very often to tell our own stories and to be our own subjective selves. And so that was my goal of taking back that narrative, taking back um, what has been told about who we are. And one of the things I really wanted to emphasize was that so many of the ways that cisgender people, people who are not trans, um, are introduced to trans issues is through the specter of death in that mm. we are, we talk about uh, trans women who are murdered, uh, black and brown trans women who are much, much more likely to be victims of violence. Um, and so we're introduced into the world as this sort of uh, ultimate marginalized victim who is uh, constantly experiencing violence and death and struggling. And part of taking back that narrative is talking about reasons of why somebody in that sort of world would still want to transition. And the fact of it is that there's so much joy to be had in being your authentic self, uh, being who 
you know yourself to be outwardly and inwardly. Um, and I wanted to really emphasize the amount of joy that comes. And I think that's a very important political stance as well, because it says, no, we're, we're worth protecting because being trans is a good thing. It's a happy thing. It helps us to live our authentic selves more uh, openly and freely. And so existing as a political subject within that is always going to be tough. Uh, the personal is always political uh, when you are not a white, cis, straight man. Um, so it's, I wanted to take that back and take back my own narrative and express the joy that I feel in being who I am. As you know, I think a lot of people associate transness and non-binary witness and queerness, honestly, with like this new generation of people. Um, and as, you know, a, a, an an older person or as an adult, let's just say it that way, as an adult yes. who, who has this identity. Um, one of the mythologies that I've become really aware of, Diana, is this idea that trans kids and non-binary kids are the result of overly indulgent parents um, of folks who are not willing to, you know, tell their kids this is the the reality, the biology, whatever. Um, and therefore, the, the kids, you know, are, are out here making up identities to inconvenience and confuse the, the people around them. What did it look like for you um, to to transition to talk about being non-binary with your family? Um, how how did you know, how do you combat some of the mythology around what it looks like to love and support a, a trans young person or, or a trans adult? We we live in a culture, I'm going to put it this way, that does not think children are people, mm. that hates kids, um, because any kid who expresses that they know themselves and know things about them is told that they're wrong, that the adults in their life always know better. Um when the reality is that kids know who they are pretty young. When I was a kid in the 90s, we didn't have the language of non-binary yet, but I learned what a tomboy was, and I was like, that's me, instantly. Like, I knew exactly what I was and how that um, connected to the language that I had at the time. And so kids who are telling us who they are are not engaged in this it's not an imaginary friend. They're not uh, making things up just to be cool or whatever. Um, they are telling us who they are, what their experience of the world is, and we should be honored that they are willing to share that with us. Um, and kids are capable of understanding those things. I have two nieces who are 11 and six, and they understand that I was their Aunt Diana, and now I am non-binary. I was their dad's sister, and now I am their dad's sibling. Uh, my oldest niece will correct my uh, my brother and his wife when they get my pronouns wrong, uh, because they're capable of understanding it. Give it and up they, for the the young people in our lives who are like, you know what? I am I am here for 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 a, a world that lets people be who they are. Yeah, and that's essentially what non-binary and trans kids are doing is that they are asserting who they are. They know who they are and they are just simply saying, this is who I am, deal with it. And parents should greet that with an air of, I'm glad that you shared that with me rather than, oh, this is scary. Um, I it's a new thing for a lot of parents, but it's possible for, for you to be supportive. <laughs> I want to invite people to join this conversation about what it means to be non-binary, about the book In Transit, being non-binary in a world of dichotomies. If you'd like to join the, the, the conversation with comments, with questions, with your own story, um, the number is 608-256-2001. And our, our wonderful team today will, will get you on the air to have this conversation with us. Um, so you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow. Today, we are so lucky to be in conversation with Diana E. Anderson. They are the author of the new book, In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. And I think, you know, 
I I wondered what the pushback to this book looks like, because if you are watching kind of the conversation we're having as a nation about what it means to be trans, people are, you know, politicizing what it means to be trans and non-binary to the greatest possible extent. Um, There are laws, you know, people are trying to pass in legislations across the country that would ban trans athletes from participating in sports Mm -hmm. as young as the age of four. that would, you know, dictate what bathroom young people can use, that would ban um, hormone therapies and, and other, you know, medical interventions that support folks who are transitioning. Um, what what have the, the communities that are, you know, have, have folks who are vehemently against the non-binary and trans community, have they stumbled upon your book? And, and what does their reaction look like? Most of them have these assumptions about non-binariness and about transness that I have found are very hard to shake. Um, They don't want to be confronted with the reality of our humanity, of who we are as people, uh, the fact that we exist, whether or not they agree with their existence. And um, it's, it's been interesting to, cause I, I, luckily have not gotten specific pushback to the book. And I wrote the book very carefully to um, make it so that it would be hard to push back against that because so much of it is my own memoir, my own story, weaved together with the theory and the history and it's all sourced and researched. Um, And so I haven't gotten that, but I have had people like show up online, tell me non-binary is not a real thing. It's not like, you you're you'll always be a woman or you'll always be a man because i can't tell (laughs) what i am uh which is always hilarious to me because it's like well you're proving my point well yeah no i i always think like that's the really that's the really interesting thing about racism Mm -hmm. and about hatred and homophobia is that there's not a real attachment to accuracy right yeah like so i've definitely had people who um have have called me all kinds of identities that are not my actual identity um you know mm-hmm. who have who have really been confused by by you know why i'm brown or or why i sound the way i sound and i think it's a really interesting um a really interesting element of that and a nice reminder that hatred is not fueled by anything real. Um, and so the same yeah. the same people who are saying, you know, you're not real are are consuming uh, something that that leads them to be less accurate and less able mm-hmm. to, um, you know, interact with you in, in any real or, or substantial way. That being said, I think mm-hmm. so much of that is so damaging to our young people, mm-hmm. right? To have somebody tell you that your identity doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um, is a really painful experience mm-hmm. that so many of our non-binary youth are facing every day at school um, or every day at home. Was was your family when, you know, you talked a little bit about your mm-hmm. your sibling, you talked a little bit about like the, the next generation of kids in your family um for the older folks in your family how what did accepting your journey look like and and what did it mean for them to 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 start to see you um as not necessarily the the person that they thought you would be it's been um i talk a little bit about it in the book but like with my um with my father and his family it's been very hard they are evangelical christian Republicans, they don't want to um, recognize that somebody they know and love and have loved since I was a little kid um, is different than what they expected me to be. So that has been tough, but I am very lucky to have a brother and a sister-in-law who are very supportive. Uh, When I came out, I texted uh, my sister-in-law and went, hey, I think I'm non-binary. And she went, we kind of guessed. (laughs) Um, which is is great that like they already sort of knew um and we've had a lot of time discussing like how we talk about it with their kids because they're uh my oldest niece was like eight when i came out um so we were discussing like how they should address me and they've been supportive in those ways and I haven't quite figured out how to get through to the rest of my family yet, but that's something that I think every queer person or every person who grows up to be different than what their parents expected 
kind of just has to deal with. Yeah, I think there's that really complex balance in in families mm-hmm. of like, I need you to accept me for who I am, but I also have to accept you for who you are, you mm-hmm. know, and how are we meeting each other where we're at? Where is my compassion for somebody who's been conditioned mm-hmm. to think like the most important thing they can do politically is vote in the interests of their taxes yeah. or whatever um, mm-hmm. with my my fundamental rights as a human being to exist? One of the things I really love is you you talking about, you know, your identity and, and the, the process of kind of discovering yourself as a tomboy um, and making space for your, yourself where you felt safe and, and could be seen to a certain extent. I think for so many young people, um, you know, when you don't have the words for your identity yet, you look to pop culture. And I think, you know, for me looking at artists like Prince or looking at, at artists like, you know, who, who were really bending the, the ex, like Grace Jones, really bending the expectations of how we talk about gender as a young person um, was where I found so much safety. What for you as somebody who was also raised in the nineties, what were those kinds of, of, of spaces, you know, were you finding support in your classroom? Were you finding support? Where, where were you looking to, to create your identity, especially as a young person? Yeah, in the in the 90s in South Dakota, it wasn't all that progressive of a place, but I was still like, it is uh, not. uh, I mean, in 2022 in South Dakota, it is progressive is Um, a stretch. Yes, Uh, there are some there are some pockets that are really good. Uh, But for me, a lot of it was being able to like my mom was not a very feminine person. And so I always had this example of womanhood that was not the um, hyper feminine uh lots of makeup high heels uh whatever images so i knew like i had those options available to me of what gender could be um and i had i had a short bowl cut because i refused to have my hair uh long i hated getting it brushed and everything and i um when i wore dresses i absolutely hated it i had all these like stereotypical um ways of of being where i rejected that sort of feminine image um but i didn't have the language uh for it and looking back i realized that like my models for who i wanted to be were always like the people who uh sat on the middle of that gender line like uh, leonardo dicaprio in the 90s was one of those men who look like an older lesbian uh sort of things thank you for naming that that was sort of the um image that i really liked was these like um men who sort of sat on that gender line or women who sat on that uh sat somewhere else on the spectrum and presented a different form of whatever masculinity or femininity that they wanted to um and that was always the uh thing for me although i didn't let myself actually like see that and know it uh consciously until I was an adult. I had such a a hard time with with this in conversations with friends who I think for the most part want to be like want to be allies want to be supportive and still relate to gender through their own perspective and experience and and so having friends who say i don't identify as non-binary but i don't identify with a lot of expressions of femininity either um you know and 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 saying like you know it well isn't androgyny the space for for this community and do you need non-binary as an identity when you already have an androgyny when you already have these these other um when you already have the language of tomboy and and those sorts of things do you do you need the the non-binary label and why is it important and why why is it different than androgyny why is it different than tomboy yeah that's a really good uh question because i think a lot of people want to associate uh non-binariness with like the the sort of david bowie androgyny the prince androgyny uh sort of Thing. And that is a part of the gender expression for some non-binary people, but it is not the identity. Um, there's no one singular non-binary look or uh, approach to how they present their gender. Um, and a lot of that is because the identity is innate. It's inborn in who we are. And so for me, it has been whenever I tried to define what woman meant for me, 
I could never come up with something that was satisfactory, that described who I was. It never felt like it fit as a label. I didn't identify with uh, being called a lady or being called a woman or being called any of those terms, uh, even as I tried very hard to fit myself into those labels. Um, and so for me, it was not that like I was looking for a different way to express femininity, but that I was looking for a way to express my gender that wasn't tied to this category because it didn't, it was meaningless to me. It didn't mean anything for me to be called a woman, but like when I found the language of non-binary and somebody called me they for the first time, it was like, oh, that's it. There it is. That's what it feels like to be affirmed in your gender. And I think a lot of cis people don't understand that feeling. I, yeah, I feel like I, I have nothing to compare that to, you know, mm -hmm. I think for, for a lot of folks, there are, there are the aspects of, of your identity that you take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, you know, for, for me as a person who occupies multiple mar marginalized identity, really coming to terms with what cis privilege meant to me and how that played a role in my life, I think is one of the reasons people struggle um, to have this mm -hmm. conversation is, is because we haven't been oriented to, to not only what it means to be non-binary, but what that says about our identity as, as cis mm -hmm. people and what that that means we have to take responsibility for um, in terms of creating spaces that are welcoming for all people. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're in conversation with Diana Anderson. They are the author of the new book, In Transit. If you would like to join the conversation with a question or a comment, give us a call at 608 2562001 huge shout out to our team today so thank you so much jade for for being here and and producing today's show along with Rochelle who is not here but is definitely the reason i know about this book um and rory who i'm meeting for the first time and is you know at, at our engineer today um is is joining us for for the next two few weeks as an intern and then shout out to our news director Shali Pittman um who is always behind the scenes like bringing it together and making sure we're on the air. Diana, I, I, I'm curious about the parts of this book that were, were difficult to write, because I think writing about yourself and writing about your family while representing a larger community um, is as challenging as it gets, mm -hmm. right? You had to know there are going to be people who look at this book and think of you as the prototype of what it means to be, you know, a non-binary person. There are people who will pick up this book and this is as close to knowing a non-binary person as they're going to get. And I think that creates an incredible level of, of pressure. What was it like to kind of rise to the occasion and, and meet that, that challenge head on? It was interesting because I know for some people, I am the only non-binary person they'll ever encounter. And go writing, uh, going into the book, I knew that was going to be the thing. So I reached out to a bunch of other non-binary people so that I could talk to them about their experiences and try to incorporate them some into the book. Um, and that was absolutely uh, delightful because every interview I started with uh, was just describe your gender for mm. me. And I got so many different responses to that depending on the context the person was coming from depending on how they saw uh their gender journey and so that for me was the recognition that i am one story uh, in a bunch of others and i tried very hard to make that clear that i am just one person coming from this specific context which is part of why i couched it in so much of my own specific context because i wanted to make sure that this was my story that was being told and that where I needed other non-binary people, uh, say non-binary people of color, uh, non-binary people who had different experiences, um, who were assigned male at birth, for example, that I looked to what they had said about themselves. Because that's the thing that I find most important is honoring, is believing people when they talk about their own lived experience and what they feel about themselves. Um, and so I wanted to impress that upon, uh, especially a cisgender audience, that 
I am not the only non-binary person in existence, and there are people who have been out and non-binary much longer than I have. Oh, thank you so much for, for speaking to that and speaking to kind of having, you know, a relationship with yourself that allowed for you mm-hmm. to prioritize your story and value your own voice and simultaneously saying this book has to include perspectives and experiences mm-hmm. beyond my own um, in order to remind the reader that that this is not, you know, one kid in South Dakota, mm-hmm. that this is this is folks all over and throughout history yeah. who have really different relationships to what it means to be trans um, than you do. And I think, you know, talking about trans women and, and I think I Actually, going back, I in reading the book, you talk about, you know, how non-binary was seen as an expression of this or kind of within this umbrella and is now kind of emerging as its own umbrella, as its own larger, you know, identity. Um, and I think in the LGBTQ community, non-binary and transness have have really existed in a very specific place within the the community within the lgbtq community because it's where you kind of stop talking about sexuality and start talking about gender um and and i wonder how how you balance that how you balance that conversation about what it means to be non-binary and what non-binary what it what what being non-binary ultimately says about a person's sexuality my (laughs) My joke with uh, non-binary and sexuality is that if you're attracted to me, you're gay. Mm. Um, (laughs) Because there's some parts of all genders within uh, how I see myself and parts of no genders. So it's all over the place. Um, But it also just emphasized for me how important it is to let people define their sexuality for themselves um, and to be... um, open to how people describe their sexuality and describe their gender. For much of the cisgender heterosexual population, being cisgender and being straight are pretty much exactly the same thing. If you are a man, you're attracted to women. If you are a woman, you are attracted to men. Um, And that is part and parcel of that sexual role. And so I wanted to tease out how gender interacts with sexuality but is not defined by it and separate out those identities even though they are very um connected within the individual person within how we talk about them as political categories uh needs to be separated out i i really appreciate that and do you feel like your own sexuality because i think so Mm -hmm. much of the LGBTQ community actually does rely on the binary to describe sexuality, right? When you think about, like, I identify as bisexual, um, and mm-hmm. I, I think about how much that that identity relies on, you know, on on a binary uh, way of thinking, um, and I think that's that's true for for a lot of identities within the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community. So, without that language as a non-binary person, um, how do you how do you talk about your own sexuality? I mean, I hear I hear you saying this is how I talk about the people who are attracted to me. But how do you talk about who you're attracted to? Yeah, for before I came out as non-binary, I identified as a lesbian woman. Um, And that was very much a um, sort of political label for me as much as it was a description of my sexuality. Um, And in looking at the history of the LGBT community and how it has existed and formed, uh, particularly for the lesbian community, it's always functioned as something of a third sex or a third gender. It has always been this open, like sort of collective catch-all for uh, anyone who identified as a woman or was like woman adjacent uh, and engaged in these non-heterosexual ways of being. And so for me, existing within that lesbian community, knowing that history um, was very freeing to allow myself to explore my gender because the lesbian community has traditionally been very accepting of expressions and identities all across the gender spectrum. Uh, Even though the sort of 
retconning of history that we're getting now is that lesbians are only for women when it's like well stone butch people exist and they're basically they 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 like pass as men very often um and yeah they're they mistaken them, as men very yeah. often. uh andrea gibson who has you know has come yes. out as non-binary but for a long time mm-hmm. identified um has this great part of a poem where somebody's like are you in the right restroom and she's like well it's gonna be hard to put this tampon in while i'm standing in front of a urinal um so yeah yeah, i'm in the right bathroom um i i i so i so appreciate you speaking to that and i think you know i want to mention that you are that you know diana they will be coming to town they will be at a room of one's own on thursday at six so if you enjoy this conversation you're gonna love this book i'm telling you in transit is is a really like beautiful like yeah it's just a really beautiful book it's something you can kind of wrap around yourself and and enjoy word for word page after page so make it to a room of one's own on thursday at six we have a question from a listener so thank you so much for listening to wort 89.9 fm madison my name's ali muldrow today we're in conversation with diane diana anderson they are the author of the new book in transit and the question is Were there other books, especially books by other trans folks that helped you write in transit? Yeah, I read uh, my background is in women's studies and gender theory. Uh, So I read a lot of stuff by Jack Halberstram, who is a professor in Chicago. um, And he is a trans man who transitioned in the early uh, 2000s and wrote a lot about that relationship between lesbianism and transgender uh, identity. Um, and I also read a lot of Judith Butler. Um, but I've also read, I have a friend here in the cities, uh, Austin Hartke, who wrote Transforming uh, the Transgender People and the Bible. Um, and it's about the uh, the position of trans people in relationship to the Christian church, which is something that you have to deal with if you're in America. Um, And I've also read uh, Julia Serrano, uh, who is a trans woman uh, and biologist, and she writes a lot about the the position of trans women um, in society. And she has a book that just came out called Sexed Up that's all about uh, sexuality and transness. Uh, That's also very good. Um, and Deshaun Harrison, who uh, had a book come out last year, they are a uh, non-binary uh, black person in Atlanta who writes about the intersection between fatness, non-binariness, and race, and they are fantastic. Oh, I love that! Like you did a little like chef's kiss for that book. Yes. You like gotta gotta get that on my list. Thank you um, for for sharing who inspired you to to write this book. And also, I think you know if this isn't on your radar in terms of how these stories are being told, it's really nice to be able to have you put other folks on on our listeners' mm-hmm. radar. So thank you so much for for that question. I think you know I I have my own like my own knee-jerk bias around what it means to be trans and non-binary. And for me, um, you know, it's really been processing what it means to be black and what it, what it means to be a black queer woman. And thinking about how femininity has been denied to to black women specifically. And so I think of the the poem, Ain't I a Woman um, by Sojourner Truth. I, I think about, you know, the, the black, the ways black women are denied um, their their femininity, their their womanhood, their relationship to their children, their relationship to their bodies. In in this moment, it, it's hard not to talk about abortion. Um, we're having mm-hmm. this this conversation right now about what it means for Roe v. Wade to be overturned for all kinds of people, um, and by non-binary people are people that are impacted by that decision and often forgotten in the conversation mm-hmm. around abortion. Um, how how do you think your your book addresses those those moments in which we should be in solidarity, we should be talking to each other, with each other, including each other, and yet somehow there is this divide, there is this competition um, for for space in these conversations there is this idea that we can't talk about multiple issues at once that for some reason uh if we talk about misogyny we can't also talk about trans misogyny that affects trans women it's that specific intersection but 
the thing that I've learned in my years of, of studying these issues and working in them and protesting about them uh, is that all of our struggles are interconnected. What happens to the uh, Black community here in Minneapolis if affects me as a queer person as well, because our struggles are all about bodily autonomy, being able to live our lives, being able to go um, out without being harassed by police. Um, all those sorts of things are all interconnected. And particularly with abortion, my I'm not worried about getting pregnant, even though I'm capable of doing that. But what I am worried about is my access to my health care, my transition care, because that's all connected under those same rights of the right to bodily autonomy and bodily integrity. I so appreciate you saying that because I think the conversation about abortion is not just about abortion. Mm -hmm. It is about birth control. It is about hormones. It is mm -hmm. about choice. It is about support when you have a miscarriage. It is about who gets to be a parent and who does not get to mm -hmm. be a parent. Um, it's 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 a really, you know, expansive conversation. And so mm -hmm. to have this conversation with you is, is such a gift, Diana, um, in terms of being able to talk to somebody whose lens is you know, your analysis is intentionally inclusive. It is intentionally intersectional. Um, and I think that's what we need at the forefront of these conversations is a willingness uh, to listen to, to people who are saying there is more than one way to think about this. Um, and, and we have to get over, you know, having these these conversations in really narrow um, ways because that isn't helping us at this point. Mm -hmm. When you when you were writing in transit, was there ever a, a moment where you thought, you know, this could be dangerous, like people could have really hostile, really violent responses to this? Um, and, you know, how did you prepare yourself for for that if that was part of your your thinking yeah. in creating this book? Yeah, that was a conversation I had with my publisher Um who are, I, I publish with Broadleaf here in Minneapolis. They're wonderful. They're very supportive. Um, and we were talking about, specifically with contract negotiations, my agent and my publisher and I um, wanted to make sure that there was no way that, like, if anti-trans people decided to harass the publisher over publishing this book, that they wouldn't drop me over that. Because that has happened where, like, anti-trans people are like, how dare you? Um, and go after the publisher saying, like making wild claims about what a trans person has done. Um, and so getting those safety things into place uh, way ahead of time, we were thinking about this two years ago when mm. we were working out the contract. Um, and it's something where I don't think a lot of cisgender straight writers have to do that, <laughs> have to worry about what that's going to look like for their publisher. And so it's just another way of having a different experience there where we, um, I, before I give talks on university uh, lectures, because I also do speaking at universities, I ask the moderator uh, what protections they have on Zoom to make sure that it doesn't get Zoomed bomb. Is the talk going to be public? What are you going to do to vet questions? Uh, things like that to make sure that like I'm usually fine if people harass me directly because I know that like I can take it. I have a very thick skin from being online. Um, but like I don't want other people who have come to the talk to see that, mm. to hear it to be exposed to it. Um, and I want to make sure that things are safe. And that's something that's just an extra consideration um, with this. And now I got top surgery a little while ago and I am now like much more, yeah, it's so great. Um, and I'm much more visibly trans than I was before. I present a much more um, androgynous sort of look than people expect and I do worry about my own personal safety in that. Uh, so it's just something that I've realized trans people have to expect whenever we do anything publicly. I don't think most people understand kind of the level of terror that you know, folks who identify as non-binary experience. Um, and I think you have to be pretty honest about that um, for folks. Otherwise, it's, I think folks have a hard time imagining, like, you know, how do how do people know and how do people react and, and what can those reactions look like? 
was your your gender nonconformity as something that you established at a at a young age something that people in your life tried to correct or change about mm-hmm. you um and 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 how did you how did you grapple with that and deal with that and what did what did that mean for for your relationships you talk in this book about cho- about chosen family um and and i think you know that is a theme in in books that i've seen over and over again from folks who identify as members of the lgbtq community um what what are the experiences that led you to chosen family uh, for me, like my entire move from South Dakota up to Minneapolis was about finding my chosen family. Uh, when I made the move, I was like, I know like two straight people in Minneapolis and everyone else is queer. So I need to be in that community. And that has given me the space to be who I am, to be more authentically myself and ultimately to be happier And that's part of why chosen family uh, is such an important thing uh, because it has allowed me that space to explore. When I was first thinking about coming out as non-binary, I had chosen people in my life. I have several trans friends. I have most of my friends are somewhere in the LGBT community. And I was able to say, hey, I'm having some gender feels. Would you be okay like trying out Uh, and talking about some of this stuff with me and having that space to do that without while knowing that I wouldn't be judged for it because these were people who were out and living these lives themselves um, was really important because it gave me that safety to to test things out and to talk honestly about where I was. Uh, I think that's I think that's such an incredible like tribute to to chosen family and i also think you know i i think that there's a a a political story about folks who are chris walker who is you know a really phenomenal artist did this piece uh a, a dance piece years ago in madison called facing home about facing homophobia um and being driven out of you know his his country um, be- because of his his sexuality because of his gender expression, um, and and I think is there a part of you that that thinks I'm glad I left South Dakota, but I shouldn't have had to. Um, and and yeah. how do you how do you balance that story um, about yourself and and also when that's the story of so many members of the LGBTQ community is is having to to leave where they're from to find a place where they can be safe and be themselves. Yeah, that is unintentionally, I guess, part of like the entire reason why the book is called In Transit, Mm. because we are, as a whole community, we are searching for our home. We are searching for a place where we can be safe and be out and be ourselves. And it's not a big deal. And we are just who we are. Um, and so that has so for so long been the story of the LGBT community, um, and especially of the trans community. Back uh, in the 20th century, one of the requirements that some doctors had for doing medical transition uh, for people was that they would commit to moving to a new town and cutting themselves off so they could basically just start their life over as their proper gender. Um, and that's such a sad thing because it just it cuts you off from everything that you were and everything that you knew. Um, and I wish I could have stayed in South Dakota. South Dakota is not a safe place uh, for me personally. But I know a lot of queer and trans people uh, back in South Dakota who are doing the work to protect the community and to fight for them where they are. Uh, and we should never... I, I'm very strong about how we should never discount people in red states who are doing that work. Um, the I've made friends with uh, the Transformation Project there, which supports parents of trans kids in South Dakota, gets them connected to resources, provides them with everything that they need um, to support their kids and get them connected to whatever care they need. Um, and that to me is really important work and it makes me sad that like i don't feel comfortable being back in south dakota but i'm glad that people are there working for it 
Oh, thank you so much for for speaking to that. And shout out to the folks who are doing doing the work in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just at a conference with some of those folks in in Minneapolis, um, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, like they, you know, it's Wisconsin is is its own mm-hmm. has its own problems, but there there's a lot of work to do in a lot of places. Uh, you know, uh, our 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 producer today jade sent this this little blurb about your book in transit looks forward to a world where being who we are whatever that looks like isn't met with tension and long-winded explanation explanations but rather with acceptance and love being non-binary is about finding home in the in-between places as you have found your home, as you have established who you are, is there a part of you that looks back at younger versions of you, and we've only got a couple moments, and wishes you could say something to that young person who maybe didn't know they were going to find um, their way to chosen family and safety and their true identity? If you could go back and, and talk to the kid version of you or could talk to the young people across this country who are struggling to be out and non-binary or be out and trans, what do you want to say to to yourself and to other young people who share your identity? The the dedication of the book is to all gender creative and transgender youth. Uh, And I did that very purposefully because we as adults have failed them in a lot of ways, but they still living their truth, still being who they are, are changing the world. They are making it better. And the, I would just love to tell them the world will get better. Uh, the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, but we do have to do some work to bend it and make sure it stays just. Oh, I, I so appreciate everything you've, you've shared with us today, but particularly that I think so often, like, I think like the world will be a better place because there are young people who refuse to let it stay the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much, Diana, for your book, for In Transit, for being non-binary in a world of dichotomies um, and for, for sharing your story and your perspective and your research with all of us here at WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is A Public Affair. I'll see you all next week. Six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station.